Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're taking a look at Sony and Marvel's Madam Web. Boy, oh boy, the film is out. Uh, reviews are out too, so I don't know if I have to tell you whether or not it's good or bad. But is it so bad it's good? The big question everybody's got on the internet. We've watched the we've watched the film. We have the answers. We're also going to take a look at American Fiction. Uh, Best Picture nominee this year, the very few people are talking about. Uh, we had a couple of screenings here in Dallas. I managed to sneak away and catch one. So we're going to talk about that movie. And we're going to talk about Netflix's nine. Also, a couple of Oscar nominees in here, Annette Benning and Jodie Foster, notably. Uh, this is a Netflix feature. Andy took a look at it. We're going to talk about what's going on. I want to have a larger conversation about what exactly is happening in Madam Web and our Death of Cinema segment. Before we get to all of that, we need to talk about the news. Our first story this week, Andy, uh, Marvel has a Fantastic Forecast. I don't believe it. Finally, the Fantastic Four have been announced. Uh, who are our four uh, mighty heroes? <laughs> Who do we got? Probably, Who's on deck? Probably the worst kept secret in Hollywood. Like, I mean, we found out, or there were rumors of this cast back in like the fall in November. So it's not exactly a huge surprise, but it is nice to finally get confirmation. We have Pedro Pascal as Reed Richards, Vanessa Kirby as Sue Storm, uh, newcomer Joseph Quinn, who I um, am not super familiar with. Uh, he's going to be the Human Torch, Johnny Storm, and. Cousin, who you might recognize from uh, the show The Bear, Eben Moss Bachrock, as uh, Ben Grimm, or better known as The Thing. So we have our Fantastic Four cast. Uh, this movie is slated for July of 2025. Uh, script and director are already finalized. They're going to get production on underway soon. We'll see if it actually comes out, because it's going to be going up against the likes of things like Superman Legacy from James Gunn. So exciting news in the comic book world. Andy's right. Uh, we reported on this a while back. It is not a well-kept secret, but now it's officially been formalized uh, via tweet from at Marvel on Valentine's Day when they released some art. Uh, we got it up on screen if you're watching the live right now uh, with our fantastic forecast all together, having a little party in what appears to be a 1960s setting uh, with like a cute portrait of like OG Ben Grimm in the background. Ebon Mosbachrach is an uh, astronaut and this little like gizmo R2-D2 looking droid helper that's handing the thing a cup of coffee uh it looks like it might be a retro feature a, n a nostalgia feature right uh, 1960s i think people are talking about which i'm gonna be honest couching the fantastic four in a retro film might be it might it might be a good way to help the medicine go down right andy what do you think i think it's i think it's a sharp approach it tells us a lot it means that this may not really tie into the modern mcu if it's taking place in the 60s I think that's one big signifier. Uh, it will be interesting to have a, a period of peace. We've seen this done before with things like X-Men First Class, which kind of takes place in, in the 60s. Uh, it's an int interesting approach. Uh, I dig it. It, it. it really depends on things like what's the look, what's the tone, what's the story, who's going to play Doom? Is Doom going to be the, for the big villain? Probably not. A lot of these movies have an annoying thing of where they... You start out with like a mid-level villain and then you tease like the big, you know, it's like the Joker at the end of Batman Begins. You tease the Joker for the second movie. You don't put him in the first movie. Yeah. I don't know who the bad guy is going to be. We don't even know for sure that it's going to be set in the 60s. Like that's no sort of formal announcement, but it's got people talking. I think it's a clever way to at least market it. And for what it's like, for, for what it is, I think the cast is fine. I don't have any real complaints. Uh, uh, newcomer, uh, what's his name? Uh, from uh, Joseph Quinn. 
Joseph Quinn as Johnny Storm. Uh, he is in Stranger Things. He's uh, Eddie Munson in season four, right? The, the, the Hellfire Club. That's that's where he's from. Andy didn't watch the new season of Stranger Things, so he doesn't know. And if you Yawn. haven't watched Hulu's The Bear. Yawn. Well, all right. All right. All right. If you haven't watched Hulu's The Bear, Emmy Award winning show, you would not know Emmy Award winner Ebon Moss Bachrock either. He's got those uh, bright blue eyes. That's what uh, Christopher Christopher Nolan liked about Killian Murphy all those years. Got striking blue eyes. that will better come off great in whatever suit he's in. And also uh, goes alongside uh, Vanessa Kirby, right? Who I think is probably a really great pick as Sue Storm. She's talked about one do Sue Storm in the past on red carpets so like she nailed that I think getting uh, Pedro Pascal in while, while he's hot is smart I don't know by the way somebody mentioned this <laughs> Pedro Pascal when is he shooting the Mandalorian odd question but like he's got to do the Never. last of season two and he's doing this so somebody pointed out I'm pretty sure there's like two or three stunt doubles for the Mandalorian how many how much of that show is actually him in the suit now you think I bet it's maybe 30 percent I bet it's just a, a stand-in gotta be there's no way he's on set. He's got he's got other things to shoot. He's got to do face rolls now. Like he's got to be he's got to be the face of Disney. Uh, well, season f- well season four is going to be I guess the Mandalorian movies, which is in mm-hmm. 2026. So I guess he's still got time. He'll uh, be on I, some of that. You, yeah, yeah. You know that he's got to have the helmet off. So he's going to have to be. They're going to get him on set for a lot That's of that right. movie. I think he he will be on for a half day. They'll have him in, and then he'll come do a day of voiceover over Zoom, and that'll be his role in. No, I'm sure he'll be fine in the Mandalorian, and I'm sure Fantastic Four will be good. Uh, more on this as it develops here on Oscar Film Review. Our next story this week. Uh, this came out today. Uh, Sam Mendes is making four separate Beatles movies. I think this is not going to happen. I think this is the most bonkers Beatlemania idea I've ever heard. This is coming from Apple and I think Sony, yes, announced it announced this that in 2027, Sam Mendes is going to release four different films all about each individual Beatle. John, Paul, George, and Ringo, not necessarily in that order. Who is going to go see four Beatles movies in 2027, Andy? Who cares, right? What am, what am I missing here? Am I am I taking crazy pills? I mean, the Beatles are still such a huge influence culturally, globally. I think there's a lot of fans i think the risky part here is i mean four films in in one year it that's a pretty much that, that's basically tv is what you're doing you're doing eight episodes of a tv show um like film is getting more and more serial serialized um it's going to be tough to see if you can get audiences to to all four movies it is a cool idea it's also three years away it's not going to come out until 2027 a lot can happen a lot can go wrong we talk all all the time about shifting dates and uh, things like that like it's a long way out to call your shot so i, I don't know if this is actually going to happen it, it seems like too big of an un- undertaking in how volatile the hollywood system is yeah sony spoke on kind of the nature of this project they said quote we intended this to be a uniquely thrilling and epic cinematic experience four films told from four different perspectives which tell a single story about the most celebrated band of all time look i love the beatles and i know they're getting a lot of buzz. They got that new track come out, right? That new single that Peter Jackson worked out with John Lennon's vocals. They had Get Back, uh, the Peter Jackson project with Disney. Uh, they just had that song in Argyle, which, you know, I guess is big for a $200 million feature. Um, but now we've got 
four music biopics that all tell the story of one music biopic. It's like, I don't even know if people care enough. But the thing that surprised me most is a statement from director Sam Mendes, director of American Beauty, 1917, Skyfall, Spectre, Road to Perdition. He said, quote, I'm honored to be telling the story of the greatest rock band of all time and excited to challenge the notion of what constitutes a trip to the movies. Like, it's, it's it, they're talking about it like it's not just one film. Like, a ch- challenge the notion of what constitutes a trip to the movies. What does that mean? Is this a mini series? Like, why would I go see all of these? And Ringo's got to be last, right? Or maybe like second. They'll do John or Third. Paul first. Like, I, yeah, I, they'll probably do our boy George at the end, which is dirty, but it's fine. I, I just no, you got to go. Am I wrong for being a skeptic about this? What do you think? You're gonna start with Paul and you're gonna end with John. You got to start strong and end strong. Who knows where yeah, Ringo right. goes? Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, I figured you yeah. do John. Yeah, go ahead. I don't know how much, again, is everyone going to be go to the first movie and not the other three? Is This sounds more like it should be something that comes out on streaming, honestly. Yeah, it really does. It's it's but, a surprise. It's odd. But again, Apple, Apple owns the rights to the Beatles music, and so this is something they'll put on their streaming service, and so that's another reason it's it can be odd and different and eight hours long because it thinks it be however long they need to be on streaming. Yeah, it's uh, we keep it here for more on this. Like I said, it it sounds like such a fantastic project. Like it's not going to happen. Like it sounds like a pie in the sky idea. I'm surprised they've got a quote from Sam on it. Whatever. I get. I, hey, whatever. They they got it locked down. Four Beatles films coming soon. I guess keep it here on Oscar for more for something a bit more grounded. All right, a bit a bit less absurd. Uh, our boy Luke Besson is directing a Dracula feature, right? A director of uh, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, The Fifth Element, right? Uh, fantastical features taking us to foreign planets, alien worlds where anything can happen. Sci-fi greats is now uh, diving into the gothic with a Dracula adaptation. Uh, what do you know about this, Andy? So Bram Stoker, Stoker's Dracula, which is kind of one of the definitive tellings of that story, uh, was made in 1992 with fantastic cla- cast, uh, Anthony Hopkins, almost said Keira Knightley, um, not Keira Knightley, who's the 90s ver- version, I, I'm blanking. Uh, Keanu Reeves is in it. Um, it's fantastic telling uh, of Dracula. And in this version, he he's... Uh, Prince Vladimir, who is smited by by, or he perceives he's been smitten by God. His his uh, love interest dies. He curses God and become like signs a pact with the devil. Becomes Dracula, and then kind of te- not teleports, but four hundred years later, he thinks he sees her again in in London. He, uh, kind of dooms himself. The the nineteen ninety two uh, Bram Stoker, the Francis Ford Coppola, is insane. Like it is so crazy, and I, and I I can't even imagine being in a theater in 1992 and seeing this thing. We've reviewed it for the show. It's nice to see this being made again. It's it's definitely been long enough. Um, and and Dracula has has a weird copyright thing to it. You just can't call something Dracula because that's copy written by someone else. But Bram Stoker's Dracula is the name of the the book, the title, and so you can kind of get away uh, with it. I'm excited about this. I love this property, and uh, it, but it's a high bar to see because then that 1992 version is crazy. Yeah, if you have the means, let me let me just speak as an an OG Bram Stoker's Dracula hater or Francis Ford Coppola's <laughs> Dracula hater. Uh, if you have the means, go see that in the theater. 
I know you're thinking, when is that going to come to a theater? I thought the same thing. A local theater of ours at a retro screening, we went and saw it, completely changed my opinion on that movie. If you have the means, go get swallowed by a screen running Bram Stoker's Dracula to treat. Uh, as for Luc Besson's Dracula, we'll see, man. Uh, his last movie, uh, Dog Man, made $3 million in France and got mixed reviews with Variety calling it a ludicrous howler and, quote, an irredeemably boneheaded thriller that also star Caleb Landry uh we'll see I, I you know we'll see I don't know I like I think people like to think of the most fantastic elements of his work as the things that really stand out obviously there's a lot of potential with something like Dracula and Christoph Waltz is a great time I wouldn't mind seeing him take on the big man with the fangs we'll just have to see I guess uh, one more story Re- this yeah, go ahead real quick before we move on I want to get the cast right of that 1992 uh, version that starred Gary Oldman as Dracula in this incredible makeup. Winona Ryder, Anthony Hopkins, Keanu Reeves, Richard E. Grant, Carrie Elwes, uh, Tom Waits, Monica Bellucci. Like, it's an amazing cast. I encourage you to watch it. Keanu Reeves has a, not only the worst haircut, but the worst English accent you've ever heard. Oceans of time. Oceans right. of time for you. It's my best. It's the best old man I got. Uh, one more story this week uh, from the box office. Uh, Bob Marley, One Love, opens with $52 million while Madam Web wipes out. Oh, no. We're going to talk about Madam Web in just a second real quick. But uh, speaking of me, uh, dumbing down music biopics, just a couple stories ago about the Beatles. Turns out Bob Marley, One Love ain't doing too bad. Right, Andy? Yeah, it came in the weekend at a uh, fifty million, eighty million globally. This is like double what they thought it was going to make. They thought it might come in in like the twenty to thirty million dollar range. So it's doing really good. This biopic, like, it doesn't look like a great movie to me, and it has not been reviewed well at all by critics. Huge hit, which just goes to show no one knows anything in Hollywood. You never know what's going to hit and connect with uh, audiences. Uh, but it's doing really well. And these music biopics, like we complain that they keep getting made because they're kind of formulaic and cheesy, but they're successful. And that's why we're we're going to be getting things like uh, the new upcoming Amy Winehouse biopic, which comes out in May. Like they're going to keep making them because people keep going. I know. Uh, Bob Marley, One Love, doing well, and Madam Webb doing poorly is a great reminder that film Twitter is not a real place and does not represent the will of the people. And just because the memes you see on there make it seem really like one thing will do good or bad, obviously is no indication of what will happen. Um, Bit of a surprise out of the box office. But, you know, also not bad. Like, I hear our man Ben Kingsley Adir is excellent in the feature. He certainly looks good in the trailers. while While we haven't had time to get around and see it, mostly because, I'll be honest... We're a little burnt on music biopics over here. Uh, I would probably get around to watching this at some point, and if we do, we'll cover it here on the show. For now, we didn't get to it. It's okay, though. Uh, I'm sure we'll be around. Oh, God, I don't know if we're going to go see that Amy Winehouse feature either. Maybe we'll go see the four <laughs> Beatles movies from Sam Mendes in 2020, 2027. Maybe we'll go do that. Um, I, I, don't I did want to also con- yeah. comment that uh, Wonka has passed $600 million globally, over half a billion dollars on the Wonka, Wonka film, which, as predicted by me on Offscript, uh, was going to be a huge hit. So, um, Timothy Chalamet, you can bank on him, and... It, that's also a musical film, uh, but it was a four quadrant thing. It was family friendly. It came in at the holidays. So $600 million. That's huge for that kind of movie. Andy's right. He called that one way early. Even I didn't think Wonka was going to do that good. I thought it was going to be a bomb, but here we are. 
Uh, it's killing it. Uh, it all, worth mentioning, it helps when your film is in theaters for a quarter of a year. I told Christine you could still get Wonka tickets today. She was like, didn't we yeah. see that in early December? Yes, that's when it came out. It's late February and it's still available. But hey, you know what? Speaks to the power of the box office, baby. Uh, I, I bet Tom Cruise wishes he could get the same play out of his 90-day windows, but that's what it is. I wonder if D- Dune won't run for 90 days, will it? Maybe. I mean, it we'll could, see. Honestly. We'll see. We'll see what the, uh, yeah, what the people might be all about the IMAX. You know, I heard Dune was estimated for like a 60 to $80 million opening, but there's some bullish folks out there saying it might go as high as 90. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I think it, it could be in that 90 to 100 range. A lot of times Hollywood's either overestimating or kind of under underestimating things usually they do a little bit too much overestimating uh but occasionally you know it's like barbie knocked it out it made like 30 million dollars more than they than they had thought so i i think this is one there's not there's zero competition the movies are you were in that era or that time of the year where there's just not much on not a lot of strong february releases you got oscar stuff out that on vod the, uh, you know, we're not quite to summer yet, so Dune will go in unopposed, and it's kind of an event thing, so it, it could be huge. I am so excited uh, that every once in a while we get such a brilliant, brilliant segue on this show that I could take advantage of. But there is no better film to talk about Hollywood overestimating itself in 2024 than this next feature. I- I'm so looking forward to talking about this with all of you, uh, especially after having to spend the time to watch it. Uh, Andy's going to be taking the review on this one. So Andy, <laughs> please uh, take it away. Madam Web. The long anticipated and highly memed comic book property, Madam Web. Uh, this is a Spider-Man adjacent property is a character from the, from the 80s that kind of is a clairvoyant and has a team of, of spider people that, that she works with. Um, this film adaptation is a little bit different. It stars Dakota Johnson as Cassandra Cassie Webb. Uh, she is a paramedic living in New York. She's a very cynical person. She doesn't really have family or friends. She's kind of dark to be around, a little bit of a downer. Uh, one day when she's out of work, she uh, is involved in an accident and is thrown into the river, nearly drowns, is brought back to the life by one Ben Parker. Yes, Uncle Ben from the Spider-Man universe, played by Adam Scott. And uh, after this accident, after she kind of dies and come comes back, is revived, things are different. Things aren't quite the same. And she is starts to relive moments in her life and she realizes she's seeing the future, but only a little bit and only a little bit at a time. She might see five minutes into the future and she tries to kind of change some things and isn't really able to make much difference, but that starts to improve. Uh, one day when she walks on the train, she foresees uh, a bad agent killing four four girls on the train and she's able to not stop him, but able to get these girls off the train and has to help them, has to learn to control these these new powers that she has and kind of uncover the secret of her her family and where the, the spider powers come from while also playing uh you know babysitter to to these four uh potential spider people, one of which is is the is uh of course Sydney Sweeney who's larger than life right now. So that's our setup. It's really complicated. A lot going on. We got a lot to talk about with this movie. Zach, what'd you think of Madame Webb? 
I would love to get on here and just say right on the top that I that Madam <laughs> Web is a so bad it's good feature. I I really would, but I am not a big purveyor of so bad it's good cinema. And I'm gonna be honest, man, I struggled with this movie. Like, there's bits I think that are so bad it's good, but overall, I think it's just so bad it's bad. There is nothing redeemable in the way of this being a good fun feature, <laughs> in my opinion. It is bad all over. The only redeeming quality is if it goes so far over the top to be bad that you throw it on during like a party with your friends a kickback as it were and you hang out and have fun and you laugh at all the goofy stuff but let me remind you for those of you who believe you are cynical enough strong enough wise enough to laugh at the un- at the ironic here to 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 jeer at the things that do not work let me remind you this is a two hour feature and it is a slog in its most boring moments to get through they try to edit around it they try to hit you with jump scares and goofy things to make it exciting it doesn't work abandon all hope ye who enter madam web it is bad from start to finish and i'm so looking forward to talking about it because i want to talk about the movie (laughs) and then we're going to talk about how this happened and why sony made this this way and and it's it's just going to be it's just going to be a nuanced conversation i'm excited to have so andy where do we get started do we start with performances tone story general i mean what the hell oh happened gosh. here so I, I will first off come out and, and I, I agree it it is kind of a disaster in a lot of ways i still had a lot of fun and i i laughed through it it's definitely has lots of so bad it's good moment it, it some of it is i mean we're it's like two of these in a row because we watched argyle i would say this is better than argyle or at least more enjoyable than than Argyle, like I would rewatch Madam Web even as as a joke. I would never put anyone through Argyle. Um, it's got lots of problems from writing to acting to effects to just kind of the whole concept. But at the same time, there's parts where they clearly spent the money. Like there's some like big stunts and like what is a lot of CGI. Um, but then, it, but somehow it it's it's an expensive steaming pile. So. Uh, Zach, why don't we start with the story, the the plot? That seems to be one of the biggest uh, issues with it. Yeah, well, I think part of the issue is kind of this overarching idea that we're going to keep making Spider-Man adjacent movies without Spider-Man in it. We're going to talk a bit more about Sony and Marvel's relationship and why that is in just a few minutes. But before we get there, um, Sony is just continuing to churn out these films that are a in the Spider-Verse or Spider-Man adjacent, but don't have Spider-Man in, in them. They have imagery. They've got Venom, right? And and Morbius is is one of these entries. And now Madam Web is here. And then soon to follow this is Craven the Hunter starring Aaron Taylor Johnson. All of these movies are starting to follow a very similar format, which is you have your average protagonist we'll say because they're not necessarily heroes in all cases but you have your average protagonist they live in the city uh something happens to them and their life changes uh they have a brief second act with some goofy action and then in the third act they kind of acquire some kind of responsibility of power and then resolve to not fight spider-man but that's probably where it's headed because we're all adults and have to buy our movie tickets and go into the theater and we understand what this is right and like this being 
kind of the third pass at this now, if you consider Venom 2. Like, it's particularly rote. Not to mention, this is coming in the, 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 the back end of dozens of comic book features that are all starting to feel very samey. So, you got a movie that does not feel like anything new and does not feel like anything different. And tragically, uh, it doesn't really do anything interesting with its cast either, which should be good. On IMDb, this cast reads great. Dakota Johnson was excellent in Suspiria. Sydney Sweeney is one of the hottest up-and-comers around. Nobody is talking about their performances in these features like they're not great and those are just the ones that are notable right Adam Scott's a lot of fun there's a couple of the cast of girls in here that would be interesting but they don't do a whole lot um, I don't yeah. I, I, I don't know so that is one of the big criticisms is the marketing has all these things about uh, Cassand- you know Madam Web and then like the spider the other women who are kind of like the, the spider girls this is uh Sydney Sweeney's character, or um, Il- Isabella Merced and Celeste O'Connor, who she ends up kind of having to babysit. Like she rescues them from from getting killed on the train, and then she just kind of has to deal with them. But they're just teenagers, and like they don't, they're not actually in spoilers. They don't have, they never get in the suits the entire movie. It's all it's kind of flashbacks or flash forwards, um, or visions rather. Uh, so like our, our three spider women that we see in all the marketing nowhere actually on screen and like, they don't have powers. They're just kind of annoying teenagers. They do kind of like, you know, just work, work together, discover the power of family and friendship to overcome all obstacles. Uh, that whole, whole sort of thing. I did think that the overall picture of this is good. Like the ideas, like if you were to write an outline of what's going on, that's it's some strong ideas, but the execution is so terrible. Yeah, Parti- uh, partic- <laughs> particularly a lot of stuff in Peru. There's this really funny mechanic that the movie does. These like kind of flash forward dream sequence things that Madame Webb starts experiencing after this uh, particular harrowing incident towards the end of the first act. She starts to have these like flashes of like an alternate timeline, an alternate reality, the future, maybe the past, right? She can see ahead kind of, but she can't really control it. And these sequences are so choppily edited like and so loud and often kicked off with some kind of jump scare, like just a gunshot in the middle of a scene. They just happen when the movie gets boring. Like as soon as things start to slow down a little bit, bang, and we're in the middle of like the flashiest, loudest sequence you've ever seen in a theater for no good reason. And it's it, it really does remind me of like Orson Welles putting a parrot in Citizen Kane, not with any kind of flair, just to like wake people up and be like, oh God, the movie got boring. Here's where test audiences said the movie got boring. We better edit in a sequence here and make this exciting. A lot of this feels like it was pulled, pulled together by test audience screenings. Like, well, we showed this to a bunch of people in Arizona and they hated it. What could we do? Ah, they said the third act was slow. Let's tighten this up. It ends up feeling like a movie made by committee. It feels like a movie made by AI. And I know Dakota Johnson made that comment on SNL, uh, a movie AI would make for your boyfriend to watch or something like that. She's been running <laughs> oh an entire smear campaign on this an film. Anti, anti-PR ever, campaign. Yes, ever since she dumped her, her talent agency the week after the trailer dropped and since has been doing everything she can to functionally distance herself, distance herself creatively. Uh, it's really odd. Like it, it seems like the stars know it's bad. It seems like Sony knows it's bad. Everybody knows it's bad, but they also spent $80 million on it, which by the way, uh, variety was reporting. That's all closer to a hundred million, but we're not sure that's before marketing. So they got to get their money back, right? They got to do something with it. Here we are. We're, we're just, we're just going to kind of just drop, drop this in theaters in February and hope for the best. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of where to go. So some of the action is really good. Like actually, some of the the practical effects. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of car crashes in this. Uh, those those are some good. Like there's some stunt driving going on. Uh, that's you can see where the money went. And then there's some absolutely atrocious CGI and animation. Some stuff. I mean, a little bit like last week's Arga, where I couldn't believe what I was seeing on screen was so bad. Like both in concept and execution. And there's some yeah. of that that here as well where, where you're seeing I, I mean just some of the action looks really bad but a lot of like the more superhero looking stuff looks terrible um w- one of madam webb's uh powers in the comic books is that she can kind of astral project and y- you're like they're not going to do that 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 would be dumb well they kind of do and it looks as terrible as as you might think and it's as ineffective and like <laughs> it's supposed to be kind of the climactic part and it's like the opposite you get the opposite effect uh so a lot of the effects look really bad but half of it looks re- looks fine looks it looks pretty good so it, it's it's bizarre how the money was spent yeah uh one of my favorite techniques this film uses a lot of uh, particularly in and out of scene transitions or in action is rolling the camera and not like just rolling film through the camera like physically rolling the camera 360 degrees (laughs) it happens a lot happens a lot Uh, director sj clarkson seems to love this move and while there's a lot going on with this film i do want to mention uh director clarkson uh, seems to have done a lot of TV, which some of it's bad, but also some of it's good. Uh, they directed an episode of Succession, uh, HBO show, which I love. Like, seems to be a little hit and miss. And I understand you've got to make a movie inside the inside the studio system. You've got to make a comic book film that satisfies Sony and Marvel. And again, test audiences. I have no doubt that's not an easy job, but it just feels like there was a lot that went wrong. Uh, the audio is particularly clumsy, notably with our antagonist to hear Raheem, who I swear to God, 90% of their lines are 80 yard. I don't know why there. I, I don't know why it is the most baffling thing on watch. Like I had heard it and then I went and saw the film and couldn't believe they almost never speak on screen. And when they do, it's 80 yard. It is the oddest thing. They've got a weird accent. Uh, Sydney Sweeney is supposed to be a teenager. She very much doesn't look like one. Dakota Johnson, for what it's worth, by the way, one more thing. I do want to say she does take a swing at some lines creatively. I think a few of them do because they probably realize just how just how bad this was. So there are some good line reads and those are going to be the things you laugh at, right? Those are the things you laugh at ironically because it's funny that it's this bad. Um, but the stuff you won't laugh at is is the, the, the genuine boring bits, which I think are, are a lot of what's happening here. I think it's more than like the good. It's more than the so bad it's good. And that's ultimately like where I end up on it. But boy, I sure have seen a lot of people saying this might be a new cult classic, right? This might be a new hang out, watch with your friends film. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I mean, I I saw it with a pretty full theater. People seem to be enjoying it. There's a lot of things that are funny, both uh, intentionally and unintentionally. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out is this takes place in 2003, and the reason it does is that it it's a little bit of a prequel to the Spider-Man universe, and the idea was that this was going to line up with a Tom Holland Spider-Man, maybe Spider-Man Four, and so they need all these characters to be like. That's why Sydney Sweeney is supposed to be like a young teenager so that she can play like adult Sydney Sweeney in in like whatever this Spider-Man thing ah. is. So that's because it, it was originally going to take place in the 90s. So but then that would have it lining up with the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man movies from the 20 teens. They bumped it up to the next decade. 
um, that's probably not going to happen <laughs> at this, this rate. So again, this is just, it's kind of a victim of the studio system where a bunch of suits and, and bean counters and execs are like, all right, we got to have an explosion here. This has got to happen here. This has got to tie up. It's got to kick off five, you know, five, 10 new films. And it's just, uh, executive to death and we kind of get this huge mishmash well i really want to talk about sony and marvel's relationship and our death of cinema segment here in just a moment so before we get there i've got to know andy to wrap up our madam web discussion would you recommend madam web i would recommend it to fans of spider-man comic book movies if you if you're really big into those i think you'll still enjoy it it's got a, a lot of it follows a lot of the same beats it has some some good moments. It has a lot of cringe and embarrassing and funny moments. It does kind of get into that so bad it's good. If you're curious, maybe save it for streaming. Uh, if, if all of this sounds horrific to you, I would say pr- probably pass. I am kind of not in the so bad it's good camp over here. I think I'm just going to say pass all around. I think there are people out there who really do like what's happening here. They They see this as like art irony. And they they really get a kick out of it. But I think if you're going to get maximum value, you have to be a really particular sort of cynic. And those people are out there, like, for sure. I know we have people listening to this show who love this kind of stuff. And if you do, if you really like it, I'd say go in. You're going to have a good time. Otherwise, like, dude, there's so much better cinema out there. There's so many better ways to spend two hours than in Madam Web because in those moments when you're not laughing and those moments when you're watching and thinking, huh, this, this, this is really bad. People weren't kidding. Like it's, it is, man. It's real bad. And, and I'm looking forward to talking about how this happened and if Sony's going to recoup their losses and if there's any way this thing makes its money back in our Death of Cinema segment. So Andy, would you mind uh, bringing us in, please? It's time for the death of cinema. So we're going to continue our discussion on Madam Web. Uh, Hollywood Reporter has this great article out. Inside Madam Web's collapse, forget about a new franchise. Uh, So like I said before, Madam Web was supposed to kick off uh, a series of new spider films. Uh, you have these three spider women that are teased in this movie. There were supposed to be more films about them. Eventually, it was supposed to all catch up to, uh, I think, a, a Tom Holland Spider-Man. Uh, so it's real bad. And this is how bad it was. There's this great, great quote that on Wednesday night when this came out, um, anyone, people that had bought advance tickets for like Friday and Saturday we're immediately asking for refunds because the reviews and the word of mouth was so bad. And you, and you could look in real time and just see the ticket numbers crashing. And it really says something when you'd rather have Shazam two numbers. I mean, as much of a joke as Morbius was for, for several years, Morbius did way better in, in its run. Like this is a new level of bad, um, even for, for Sony who has found success with the Venom movies and kind of doing the slapstick kind of cheap version of comic book book films and it just it just did not worse work for this it's been a disaster dakota johnson has been on an anti-pr campaign uh she mentions doing a bunch of stuff on blue screen where they're like just imagine an explosion here and an explosion here and she was like this is psychotic i i I don't know what this is going to look like and she's never made a film that way but uh before so it it it's bad all all around uh zach what are what are some of your initial thoughts here 
Well, I love this quote from this industry veteran here, unnamed by Hollywood Reporter, but I appreciate them weighing in. They said, quote, we're not going to see another Madam Web movie for another decade plus. It failed. Sony tried to make a movie that was a different type of superhero movie. And that it seems a little confusing because I just got off my rant saying this feels the same as every other movie because it, it does. Like, And the things that are different are, A, it's a primarily female cast, and B, they don't suit up. Andy's right. Like, this is more like uh, Leigh Wannell's The Invisible Man from a couple years ago with uh, Elizabeth. I forget her name. When she, Yeah, like, she doesn't actually, like, become any kind of anything till really the end of the feature. Like, up before that, it's a bit more of a grounded suspense thriller. At least that's what they're going for. But I don't believe that's what's failing here. I I really don't. I think the marketing sells this as a Spider-Man-oriented feature. Like, the trailers all point to this is a superhero movie. They've got super suits in them. They got Dakota Johnson in suit on the side of a Burger King cup. Like, I really don't think that's what's hurting here. I, I think it's primarily fatigue, man. I, I really do. And especially, like a lot of people are pointing out on Twitter, there's no Spider-Man. And it's becoming increasingly obvious as we get to more and more obscure heroes around a villain that's notably missing here. What everybody wants is Spider-Man. So what I wanted to ask you, Andy, if you can explain for the, for me and the people in the back, what is Marvel's relationship with Sony around Spider-Man? And why is Sony continuing to make these spinoff features and why does Marvel have to keep coordinating with them? Who owns what? How, how did that, how, did, how does this happen? So Disney owns Marvel, all of Marvel, like the comics, the the films. Uh, in the late nineties, Marvel was going bankrupt and started selling off its properties. But Sony very wisely bought the film rights to Spider-Man. And that's where we got the Tobey Maguire 2003 or sorry, 2002 uh, version of, of that film which was a huge hit and and essentially kicked off the superhero renaissance that we've been in for the last 20 years. Uh, so Sony owns just the film rights to Spider-Man and they the thing is they have to keep making Spider-Man movies or those rights will revert back to Disney Marvel. And so that's why every like five to seven years we, we get a new Spider-Man movie. You know, after the Tobey Maguire ones, we got the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies and then Tom Holland so they have to keep making these and making side projects. Um, and that, that's why they keep doing this, why they keep doing because that's basically all Sony has. Uh, they don't have any other of, of, the, um, prod, of the properties. And so th- that's why we keep getting this. And, you know, Marvel, Disney, would, they would love, love to, to own uh, Spider-Man uh, film rights, but they don't. And so that's why we keep getting these. Yeah, and it's a weird relationship, too, because... The Tom Holland Spider-Man films have been so successful. Oh my God, over the top successful. I remember going to the theater for that last Tom Holland Spider-Man film and just seeing the parking lot, how many people were in the theater for Homecoming after, uh, yeah, it's the last one, Homecoming, um, I think. Uh, after COVID, like seeing how full that parking lot was, it was like, oh my God, movies are back, baby. Like we're, we're here. Everybody's coming out for Spider-Man. Insane. Um, the, like it is an undeniably fruitful relationship. And while Disney has quite the war chest, it's not exactly cheap to buy Sony or at least buy Spider-Man out from Sony. They're not going to let it go. So in the meantime, they functionally have to play ball here because Sony's going to keep making them, it seems. And there's not a whole lot that Marvel can do about it. But the funny thing is, 
it seems like if anybody's brand is really getting hurt here, it's Marvel because Marvel is just comic book movies. Sony does all kinds of other stuff. And I know Marvel is owned by Disney, but still like you make five bad comic book movies and one good comic book movie. People are not going to have a generally glowing review of comic book films. And if Sony just keeps cranking out worse and worse features, this one topping out at a bold 13% on Rotten Tomatoes to critic scores, like, it's just going to keep poisoning the well. You know what I mean? Like it, it only stands to hurt Marvel more. D- do you think, I guess, curiously, Andy, does Marvel have any creative say? Like, can they do anything here? Or is it just like, nah, they can just keep making whatever they want. And as long, you know, as long as people keep turning out. I mean, pr- pretty much outside of, um, you know, they collaborated on when Spider-Man was in the, those phase three movies of the MCU, um, starting with, uh, Civil War, and then Endgame, the Infinity Saga, those. And there are actually a lot of stipulations. I've read part of the contract before, and, it, and it's very specifically the way like Peter Parker has to be named, how he has to be portrayed, how he can't be portrayed. Like It's very uh, specific. So there are things that they have to stick to, but Sony owns the rights, so they can kind of do what they want, but they also need to start making better movies. They're, they're just contributing to... Uh, kind of the end of the the superhero heyday yeah it sure seems like it one thing's for sure i don't think we're going to see any more madam web features at least i i can't imagine dakota johnson is back for even a cameo unless she's getting a fat paycheck meanwhile sydney sweeney showing up in a tom holland feature is more than possible obviously she's got some heat right now and it seems like sony wants another one of these features out i was reading they're trying to push for a new spider-man film as early as 2025 and kevin feige at marvel is like desperately trying to get them to hold off because they would have to pivot a lot of their strategy around how that works remember marvel had big pivots for that doctor strange movie because of spider-man they went and did reshoots they had to pivot doctor strange multiverse of madness to be after spider-man america ferrera is supposed not america ferrera america chavez is supposed to be more involved in that film uh, and then instead she she had a weird role in Doctor Strange because of that. Like, there's a whole content creation strategy that functionally revolves around this arm of creative that Marvel can't really do anything about. And in the meantime, it just seems to keep getting worse and worse. But obviously, uh, Sony has taken a hit with Madam Web. They didn't. They are not seeming to make the money back, and that's bad. If Craven the Hunter underperforms, what do you think, Andy? Do we see a pause? Do we see a rush for new Spider-Man? I mean, I don't see them slowing down anytime, right? Why would they? But I, well, think? I I think Madam Web it, in its failure will they're going to pivot. They got to pivot to something. They got to do something different because again, they had like five more f- films planned or or whatever, however many in the franchise. And since none of that's going to happen, they got to come up with something new or pivot their existing ideas. It was supposed to maybe build up to some sort of Sinister Six thing. That's the problem with with comic book movies when you need to put string together like five or six of them it's like anything goes wrong anywhere in, in that sequence and 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 you're you're kind of screwed and that was kind of the beauty of marvel phase one through three is that somehow they just could not miss and they didn't they you know they didn't have anyone die or anyone just quit quit being a superhero they managed to keep the whole cast for like 10 10 11 years uh it was an incredible thing that they did what they did and we're seeing how hard it is to recreate that even like you got to have a hit every movie's got a hit and you got to have not things not go wrong with production and cast and all that and it's it's very very difficult to recreate 
Well, I can't really speak for what Sony's doing next, but we do have some ideas of where Disney is headed. Uh, Bob Iger said at the last Disney, what, D23, Disney, Disney Investors Call, some big thing recently. They said that they are looking to scale it back. They're going to do less Marvel movies. They want them to be higher quality. So I can appreciate, at least on the Marvel side, they are looking ahead and trying to pivot. As for Sony... I guess we'll see. Like I said, they got Craven the Hunter coming out. Maybe that'll have the meme magic. Aaron Taylor Johnson might put it over the top. I'm not so sure. I definitely know there's some sequences in the Amazon in there. Mm. There's like dudes hunting <laughs> in the jungle. It's like, oh God, they shoot this like, they shoot up. They're all shooting on the same back as Madam Web. They have to. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, you, you got to cut the Madam Web post credit scene. No. Right. My God. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. Any other thoughts on this for American fiction, Andy? I just also wanted to mention that, that Dakota Johnson had said that she read a very different script initially. Uh, apparently, it originally had some sort of t- kind of Terminator vibe where the bad guy was was after Mary pa- Parker, a pregnant Mary Parker, who's Peter Parker's mother, and she she and her spider clan was were going to have to protect her from the bad guy, reminiscent of James Cameron's Terminator movie and Sarah Connor and all all that so like none of that is what <laughs> happens on screen or what we see in this movie but it seems like what dakota johnson was pitched the script she read was wildly different than what we ended up with yeah and uh i guess that's the way it goes in hollywood i remember not long ago there was an interview with adam driver talking about silent Island for kylo ren for star wars and he said he didn't even get a script they were like you just have to agree to it on the front we're going we're gonna to pitch this to you, and if you want it, here's, here's the check, and then you're getting a script, which is insane. Um, I think this stuff, this kind of stuff gives actors more clout. I really do. I think this kind of stuff steps actors forward in the space of understanding that these projects maybe are a little bit more about making money and a little bit less about like creative opportunity. It's a shame that that seems to be the case. I hope that doesn't continue because I don't think it will help uh, at the box office, any comic book movies going forward. Hopefully we got some smarter auteurs behind the camera or at least uh, some smarter executives who know where to spend their money a little bit better. Cause Madam web, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's not forgettable credit where it's due, right? <laughs> I won't forget it for a while. And Hey, if there's, if there's anything you don't want to be in the film industry, it's forgettable. But Speaking of things that are unforgettable, I'm really looking forward to talking about this next feature. Uh, It's going to be a mini review because I'm the only one that's seen it. Like I said, we had some weird Showtime opportunities for it, but I'm looking forward to getting into it. Uh, Please excuse my clumsy delivery. The film is uh, American Fiction. So, American Fiction is the story of Thelonious Ellison, uh, a black writer who is frustrated with the state of African-American literature. Uh, It's a modern uh, story. Uh, Thelonious is uh, a writer who's written a few novels that isn't getting really any recognition, and meanwhile, he's having some struggles uh, at home. Uh, His mom is losing her memory, and his uh, brother is disparate and has his own family troubles across the country and doesn't talk to him. And his sister, meanwhile, is trying to take care of mom. And on top of all that, uh, upon going to a, a book signing one day, he realizes that nobody is coming to, to check out his books. Nobody wants to keep up with what Thelonious Ellison is doing. So he goes across the street where he sees uh, Issa Rae uh, playing character Centara Golden, uh, who's just written a, a black novel called We Lives in the Ghetto. Uh, she does a, she does a reading, uh, and it is the most, to him, stereotypical 
black story full of racial stereotypes that people just seem to eat up. It's a bestseller, right? People love it. White culture loves it. They, they feel like it fits into everything that they believe black culture to be, and he can't stand it. So in need of funds and struggling at home, one night he writes, he pens a, a, a novel, or I guess an early draft called My Pathology uh, under the ghostwriter name Stag R. Lee. Uh, and he sends it to his publicist, uh, and and he, his publicist sends it out, and it immediately becomes a hit. Uh, white publicists everywhere uh, grab it, and they want to sign a, a Hollywood deal, and and they want to make it this huge thing, and order a million copies, and it becomes what's supposed to be his most successful work. And suddenly, uh, our lead Thelonious uh, begins to become everything he disdains in writing. Uh, Thelonious is played brilliantly by Jeffrey Wright. It's a fantastic cast all around. Films directed by uh, Cord Jefferson. And it is an adaptation of a book. And I feel terrible that I can't recall what exactly that book title is, but I will get it in just a second. Uh, in the meantime, like I said, I'm the only one that managed to go see this because we had some weird screening times. But notably, what I wanted to say is this film is nominated for a few Academy Awards, uh, notably Best Picture and Best Score, um, which is an uh, understated score and our only female composer. Uh, really good stuff. Actually worth mentioning. A lot of jazz, a lot of piano, very freewheeling. Um, but it's odd because it's a very dry film, very dry humor, and 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 about a very challenging time in somebody's life when their when their when their family uh, their parent is. Uh, losing their memory, right? And you have to learn how to take them to, to, to living in some kind of like full-time senior assisted living center. And you have to coordinate with your siblings about how that's going to work and who's going to pay for it. And you have to take time away from your life to take care of others. And, and it ends up being a much larger story than what's in the trailer, which on its face totally just looks like a fun story about a writer who gets frustrated and writes a novel that completely misrepresents them and ends up having a lot of success with it and then being kind of hanging on to that comet by the tail for as long as they can until ideally it all blows up in their face. Um, I don't want to say it's underrepresented in the trailer, but like I said, it, it it's like it shows 30 or 40% of the movie. All the family stuff is left out on the back end. And being a two-hour feature, that's most of your runtime. And while it's meaningful, it ends up feeling a lot like two almost separate films. It's like whimsical fun bit about the publishing industry and the struggles of writing and, and visualizing characters in front of you. And then also like really struggling with the stage of life that not a lot of people talk about. That's it, it, uniquely intelligent and uniquely adult and uniquely human. Um and that's really unique, and I'm really glad I get got to go see it. So uh, I, I did want to mention a bit of the cast in here, but while I catch my breath, uh, Andy, any questions, any thoughts on American fiction? So I, I know that Sterling K. Brown is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. How is what is his role in this, and and how is is he in this film? Yeah, so Sterling K. Brown actually plays a really interesting uh, role in this film. Uh, really quick, our, our, our cast for what's here is, like I said, we have Jeffrey Wright as Thelonious Ellison, or Monk as they call him in the film. Thelonious Monk, obviously a joke on writing. Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross plays his sister, Lisa Ellison, uh, who is taking care of their mom, uh, Leslie Leslie Uggams, who plays Agnes. Uh, and the brother, Sterling K. Brown, is our distant brother. He lives across the country. He is an oncologist, I think. Uh, his wife is not talking to him. His kids can't stand him. And he's just very recently come out as gay. And he has a lot of problems. He's got a lot of problems in this movie. And they just slowly become more apparent as we meet him. He actually flies into town over the course of the months where this film would take place while it is a two-hour feature 
adventure. It takes place over long periods of time. Uh, he flies into town three times over the course of this movie, uh, and he is struggling at home. And it's funny because Thelonious is odd fake story written by his ghostwriter character here Stagar Lee um is stereotypical like hood rat stuff man like it's about people living in the ghetto and struggling and shooting each other up right and ha- having babies and meanwhile like the black stories that are actually in the film are about a struggling black writer and his brother a struggling gay oncologist like with a family who won't talk to him and is and is, is kind of struggling to find himself and figure out how to let people in he's aggressive and he's over the top but he's hilarious sterling k brown is is wildly underrated in this feature obviously he's getting his comeuppance with some uh, uh awards buzz Issa Rae also a ton of fun is centara golden this kind of opposing writer for jeffrey Wright's Thelonious, this woman who's come in and written this story that he deems like terrible right he's like oh god how could you write that junk actually even much better when uh, a bit of the ways into the film Thelonious is selected to be a judge on a panel of, uh, of uh, like an awards panel for uh, best writing for the year. And he's placed opposite Centara and the two of them end up collaborating directly together on selecting works for the year that they think are, are worth mentioning. And they have a really, really fantastic scene towards the end where the two of them have this really frank conversation about, Hey, how do you feel about writing something that like the culture sees as so wildly stereotypical? Like, is that okay? Like what exactly are we perpetuating by putting these stories at the front? And is it okay to put these stories in front of an audience that believes them to be true, even if they're not, you know, like that's all really meaningful. And I think that plays really well alongside the very honest stories in the film of again, struggling black writer, struggling gay oncologist. And also like, Jeffrey Wright's mother in the film who's losing her memory like the family at home is like very much having their own problems and like that plays opposite really well like the kind of comedy stuff it's just again feels a little disparate now I should say it didn't work as well for me but obviously it works for somebody it's the best picture nom clearly a lot of people connected with this and like I said I think it's the kind of film I'm going to be thinking about when I'm older and maybe working through that stage of life with my parents because it feels really sincere and really honest. I know, I know director Cord Jefferson wrote the screenplay for this. Um, so obviously they've got like a very direct connection with it. Um, but I think like this cast manages to come together and really elevate the work. The problem is like the only really fun parts are the writing stuff. And there's, almost not enough of it for me like that's that's the that's the one thing a two-hour runtime like the trailer barely shows what 70 percent of the movie really is like most trailers <laughs> i guess but yeah. like, it, it, like it almost feels misaligned like they yeah they really wanted to show the fun stuff up front and there's so much more going on here like there's there's so, it's such a more thoughtful conversation yeah so Any, uh, sorry do, questions. Do, yeah, do, 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 uh so there's been nominated for several uh, Academy Awards. Do you feel like it's kind of deserving, or or it's earned those? Because uh, like from the trailers, this this looked like a movie that would come out in September. It's a safe, cheap, feel good thing. Yeah, They're not big enough for summer. Not really Oscar Beatty material either. It's a good question because I I I don't know. Like I I guess I'm I didn't. Best way to say this, I didn't know exactly what it was nominated for before I went in. 
I I was driving to the theater and thinking, hey, I should probably look up what it's nominated for. And I thought, you know, no, no, no. I'm going to watch the movie first. Then I'm going to come out. Then I'm going to check Oscar nominations. I was genuinely surprised to see it on Best Picture. Now, I know Best Picture gets up to 10 noms, like, so it's fine. I don't think it all worked for me and spoke to me in the way that it seems to have spoken to a lot of the members of the Academy. Like, I, I know it's kind of a broad category. Like, clearly it's worked. Like, somebody seems to really be into it. I didn't quite get over for me, but the stuff I did like, again, all of the writing content, like all of the publishing stuff, all of the struggles of being a writer who feels like their voice isn't heard and trying to have the confidence to continue working and working through writer's block, like all of that felt really meaningful. All of that felt really funny. All of that felt really whimsical. All that stuff in the trailer, all the stuff works great. Um, the rest of it, I, I mean, shoot, like it, it, it must be good, right? Critic, critics agree. Um, Washington Post that was the best picture of the year they put it right there on the poster so it's a surprise for me that being said soundtrack is understated I, I should say that uh, it's composer is I should have this down and I don't uh, who's our composer Laura Cartman no, notably the only female composer like I said on the list of best scores this year um, while I don't know if it'll win best score it's a good it's a good one. I was actually looking forward to Andy catching it at some point so we could talk about it. It's a good score, very different, very inventive. Um otherwise I don't know. Like it it, it feels good to me, but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel great. Well, I, I will what's say, the recommendation? What's the recommendation? The recommendation. If you are a dry humorist, you like dry humor. You're somebody who likes New Yorker articles, right? Like you're somebody who likes to think of themselves as maybe a little high and mighty when it comes to the media they consume. I think this is the perfect picture for you because our lead, Jeffrey Wright's Thelonious, is exactly that person. He, he kind of sees himself not necessarily in an ivory tower, but a little bit above, I think, like the the problems that so much of the people around him face. And it's humbling for him to have to go home and struggle with that with his family. And it's uniquely hilarious to see the publishing industry cast in such a harsh light um, because it is really funny him dealing with this publicist who's like, come on, man, I know you think it's trash. Let's send it out anyway. Maybe it'll be a hit. And then when it is a hit, well, yeah, of course you think it's trash. But if other people like, you know, like the the ways we convince ourselves that like the art we produce is worthy, even though we don't see it ourselves is, is really tremendous. And I think American fiction has a lot to say that way. I think it's a great work by Cord Jefferson. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, Honestly, I'd recommend. I do. I think I'd recommend American fiction, but it's dry. It's dry, man. And that's okay. It's dry funny, but it's dry. So if you know what you're getting into and you're looking forward to it, I think American Fiction is worth your time. I don't know when it'll be coming to streaming services, but that's probably where I'd recommend it. Not exactly a cinematic masterpiece. You're not seeing sweeping vistas and insane camera lenses. And that's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be. I think it uses the medium of film to adapt the story from the book in a way that is uniquely satisfying. Jeffrey Wright's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I'd... I'd I'd recommend, I think. And that's American fiction. I'm glad I got to see it, especially opposite Madam Web, film that I was not super into. Now, <laughs> we got to talk about one more film this week on the podcast, a different mini-review, a film Andy has seen and he's happy to report on. Andy, please take it away. Nyad. So this is a Netflix release, came out a couple of months ago, it has a couple of Oscar nominations about a marathon swimmer Diana Nyad. Uh, played by Annette Benning and her best friend and coach, uh, Bonnie Stoll, played by Jodie Foster. Uh, Diana Nyad was a marathon swimmer who had some incredible feats. She uh, 
swam around Manhattan in like 24 hours. Like this, we're talking about extreme marathon swimming. She had a hundred miles swim in the, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, she did all this in, in her twenties. She attempted to swim from Cuba to Florida when she was 28. She got about a third of the way there, got knocked way off course and, uh, had to stop the swim and then promptly retired. So we catch up with her 30 years later. She just, she's turned 60 She's a very difficult person. Uh, she rubs everyone the wrong way. She kind of is mean. Uh, she thinks everyone is underachieving and no one, no one tries hard enough. And uh, she just feels a little ennui with life. And she wants to, she comes with a crazy idea. She wants to attempt this swim again. This It's 110 miles in shark infested, jellyfish infested waters. You got to have the right current, right time of the year, right time. Everything's got to go right. Um, and she wants to do it again. Her 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 coach Bonnie, again played by Jodie Foster, is like, I don't I don't know. You're you you could not do it when you were 28. Can you really do it when you're you were 60? And so they set off on this adventure to attempt to complete the, this feat again, taking multiple uh, multiple attempts, putting together a team because you you got to have uh, a boat. You got to kind of swim next to a boat the whole time to. Uh, uh, to follow along, you got to have some safety people to keep the sharks <laughs> sharks away, medical staff, all that sort of thing. You got to have a plan. You got to be, and it's like, uh, it's a sixty hour uh, swim, sixty sixty five hour swim uh, to do this, and so it's exhausting for everyone involved. Uh, this is the two no uh, o Oscar nominations are for best actress and supporting actress for Annette Bening as Diana Nyad and jo Jodie Foster, who we've also just seen in Night in uh, True Detective Night Country. If you're watching that as well, um, I almost asked <laughs> said that's our setup, Zach. What what do you think? Zach has not seen this. Uh, the movie it 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 has it spends the money in weird places. You have an, an incredible performances by our leads, but then you got that Netflix cheapness. That, that like some of the scenes like you can tell you're indoors in a pool you're not out on the ocean uh some weird cgi and screen it's a little too long it's a full two hours you could probably cut 20 minutes uh from it, it it's a little paint by number where you know our character our mean character learns to be a nicer person and and she does work hard to uh to over overcome this there's some personal demons to overcome as well uh, a lot of the water stuff is pretty cool. Apparently, Annette Benning was, you know, spending eight hours in a pool every day to to learn how to be a, a good swimmer. Um, so, so it's uh, it's fine. It's a, it reminds me of of Zach's review of American Fiction, where it's uh, really this is getting you know this is why Margot Robbie doesn't have wasn't nominated for Best Actress. Um, this movie on Netflix that no one's seen. Um, also, I just read something that that from because I was doing research on Diana Nyad. <laughs> this kind of takes the wind out, out of out of out of the sails. Um, her achievement was not ratified. Uh, she, she did this is historical, so it's not a spoiler. She she does manage to swim from Cuba to Florida, uh, but her achievement was kind of stripped. Uh, it was not ratified. Uh, Guinness Book of World Records uh, took away the achievement. Mostly because there weren't enough uh, in kind of third-party independent witnesses for, and there were some conflicting reports. Um, there, there just, it just wasn't documented well enough to uh, to give it to her. But so that's a little uh, disconcerting. But it's still an incredible story. You know, it's, it's about not giving up on your dreams. You know, she she accomplishes 
something in her 60s, which she could not do in, in her 20s, uh, which is really inspiring. So that that's kind of kind of the the film it's inspiring it's it's got a, a lot of positives it's also it's got a lot of cheese and it's got a lot of bad effects in some places uh particularly when the, a lot of the swimming scenes a lot of you know there's stuff kind of happening underwater some of it looks great it looks like national geographic and some of it it's like okay you're in a bathtub like pretending that there's a storm kind of look well that's that's actually a perfect opportunity for me to give you a chance to breathe and 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 collect your thoughts I want to ask about direction. Uh, the directors for this film, Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vasari, Helgi? I boy, it's a tough name. Uh, they are the directors of documentary features. Uh, they did The Rescue. They did Free Solo, uh, which got nominated for Best Documentary just a couple of years ago, I think, about climbing climbing the uh, really big rock without any uh, yeah. without any, any harnesses or safety or anything. Obviously, a nightmare to shoot. There's behind-the-scenes footage of that, of them figuring out how to film a guy climbing up a huge thing without any supports, and if that's even okay. In the documentary space, I think these creators are uniquely positioned. Like, they've done some really unique work, but now, obviously, they've transitioned into narrative with this feature. Um, giving it a watch, looking at it, maybe re- revisiting it with that lens, um, I think you nailed it really good. I think a lot of it probably looks like National Geographic, right? Like, that. this is the yeah. stuff they do best. The stuff that doesn't work, I think, I wanted to ask, where do you think these directors maybe could use some improvement or maybe where somewhere that you felt was weak that looking back, maybe that could be, I don't know, could could be true. The, the, the documentary style stuff when they're out in, in the ocean on the bow where they're doing that open ocean swimming, that stuff looks great. You just got to stick to it the whole time because you can tell like there's night scenes where you're in like some studio big like... Uh, reservoir or, or like they build studios for water when you need big water stuff and it it looks like it. You, you can tell the boat's not really moving you're just like oh there's a storm that 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 kind of thing <laughs> um yeah. it's too, it's too long it, it's super oscar Beatty, which which it, it, i'm just really disappointed after seeing this that margot robbie does not have that um oscar nomination and annette bedding does because she uh, uh diana nyad is not a character that's easy to like. Uh, like I said, she's very stubborn. She's very kind of cruel. She thinks everyone around her sucks. She's like, no one tries as hard as me. I'm the best. Everyone is weak. I can, you know, and that's part of her character's journey and is learning to be a little bit more uh, personable. Um, it's fine. Jodie Foster's fine. She She's good. She's good. It's not a standout for like, oh my gosh, that's, that's the performance we need to uh, award. Um, yeah, so, I, I, I so gonna, the, the script okay. the script could could tighten up for sure. I was gonna say like I rarely see a performance by Foster or Benning that I don't enjoy. And looking at Foster as kind of the coach in this, I feel like maybe coming off True Detective, I'm a little warm on her for sure. Benning, like I genuinely do not believe she could swim that whole distance. So, and I know it's it's a fantasy movie, and I get that it's just a role. But seeing it on Netflix, it just gives it the sheen of, 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 of fakery that I don't love. And so I wanted to ask about some of the hazards, right? Obviously, it's a dangerous journey. Jellyfish, sharks, all that stuff. Does it make for at least like a harrowing third act? Does that, does that make for something particularly exciting? Does it, does it pick up the pace, I guess? Or does it look as paint by numbers as maybe a cynic would feel looking at the trailer? It is paid by number, but it does do it pretty well. Uh, it took her five attempts to 
make successfully make this swim. So we see all five. And so she fails for most of them. And the sharks are less of an issue as as much as the jellyfish. The jellyfish are the huge problem because they, they don't really know how to keep them away from a long time. And like on one of the attempts, she nearly dies because she... Um, she's basically attacked by jellyfish and uh, she starts having an allergic reaction to the medicine they give her. They got to pull her out of the boat, do CPR. And like, um, th- there are some high stress m- m- moments and it's, it's also, uh, y- you, you can easily be blown off course. You have to have a good navigator that knows all about like the winds and the currents and can keep you. And that's part of what goes wrong is she gets, blown way off course and and in a couple of the attempts and they just have to stop after you know 30 40 hours uh, of attempting because it's like we're too far off we can't get back like you're gonna, you we got to pull you out of the water so there's that part of the drama i think works pretty well the jellyfish stuff is, is particularly uh i mean it's it they're all over her face and her body like it it's tough to watch so that that, that stuff is truly scary Boy, all right. Well, I mean, that that sounds pretty exciting. Like, I, I dig that. And like, hey, who doesn't love a good sports training montage? I suppose uh, it's time for recommendations. That's that's where I'm at. You I, you've spoken on Oscar Oscar compatibility. I think uh, hilarious thoughts. By the way, great takes. I'm a big fan. Uh, your Margot Robbie standing goes uh, very much appreciated yeah. on this side of the podcast. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Nyad? If you're interested in it, if you're interested in this story, if in these characters, I, I definitely was just because this had gotten a lot of Oscar buzz. It it is fairly predictable. It is paint by number, but it's done pretty well. Part of it looks really good. Part of it looks really kind of rough and and kind of has got this a lot of cheesy CGI in some ways. Um, it is mo- motivational to an extent. I I I kind of think it's weird uh, when you have a uh, you know oh look at these. Um, privileged white women overcoming their dream, <laughs> their dreams to swim really far. Uh, so, uh, but Diana Nyad is somewhat of a celebrity. She's been on uh, dancing with the stars a couple of times. She's a motivational speaker, has written books and things like this. She was on CBS wide world of sports for a lot, for a really long time. So if you're interested in the, the character and in the story, I, I'd say watch, but it, it's not like a must watch, must see like something like the zone of interest or, or movies like that, that we've been talking about. Shoot. I forgot to ask in there while I'm thinking about it. Uh, what did, do you think it would have played better in a theater and why did Netflix not put it out? If it's an Oscar contender, I actually thought it would because a lot of the stuff underwater, a lot of the big boat shots when they're out in the open ocean by themselves, a lot of that I thought would work really well on screen. Uh, there's a lot of, um, night scenes, which are really cool in, in a way to keep her on track. They have this kind of, uh, l- this led thing floating off the boat in the water that she tracks. And like that, that's an interesting thing. And there's a lot of interesting visuals around that. I think it would have worked pretty well on the big screen, but Netflix is staunchly against the theatrical release. They're essentially trying to kill theaters. They would very much like that for that to happen and for everyone to stay home and watch Netflix. Uh, so they are not supportive of the theatrical experience at all mm. certified netflix hater dr draper you heard it here first folks now i'm kind of in the same boat netflix needs to put their stuff in theaters whatever ryan johnson's next movie is going to be is barely going to be in there david fincher's last film was barely in there it's a big miss from netflix on content strategy maybe that's why they lost they lost their lead their seven-year lead for films huh like the guy running that whole department we talked about that just a couple episodes ago and if you want to hear that episode you can go back and check out our catalog on oscar film review with all of our stuff on youtube and itunes and everywhere else but before we get to that andy we're gonna wrap up the show uh, what are we watching next week? 
So we're watching the uh, kind of comedy caper called uh, Drive Away Dolls, which is uh, a, not a Coen Brothers movie, an Ethan Coen uh, solo feature. It's 84 minutes uh, starring Margaret Qualley and G Geraldine Viswanathan and v Beanie Feldstein. It's a bit of a crime caper gone wrong. They're accidental uh, criminals. It's kind of a road movie. Looks pretty funny. We're interested in seeing that. And then we're going to figure out something else to watch, either on streaming or release. And upcoming, uh, the Tenet, the re-release of Christopher Nolan's Tenet is this weekend as well, if you're interested in catching that back in theater and IMAX. I might try and, and steal away a screening of that. And of course, the week, next week, sorry, the week after, a week from Thursday, we're going to be catching Dune Part 2 on March, uh, which comes out March 1st. Um, that's just an FYI release for those Dune heads. Uh, looking forward uh, to that. But next week, Drive Away Dolls and TBA. Very excited about Dune 2. Uh, I might try to get in on that tenant screening with you. I saw you sent me something about that, and I've been a mess this week until I haven't gotten to it. But uh, for what it's worth, I think Driveway Dolls might be secretly good. It's less than feature length. It's only one of the Coen brothers, but something about it's got a Raising Arizona kind of manic comedy energy to it that I think might, like maybe, maybe there's a chance. So I'm looking forward to talking about it next week or the week after on the show. And uh, to stand by on the streaming thing, we'll find something good. We always do. If you want to keep up with what we're doing here on Oscar Film Review, the best way to do that is to subscribe to the show as you are listening or watching it right now. If you're watching us on Facebook, follow us on Facebook. If you see this clip on Twitter, follow us on Twitter. If you see us on Instagram, throw us a follow over there. And if we're on YouTube, where huge things are happening for the channel, we've got individual reviews, clips, all kinds of things going on, on YouTube. You can subscribe to us there as well to get new videos delivered straight to you. Uh, obviously, the audio version of the show has always and will always be available for our audio podcast listeners out there on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Art Media, wherever you're listening to us. That's where we are. And we'll be here next Tuesday, probably, to talk about Driveway Dolls. And we'll definitely be here to talk about Dune and other films in the future. That big episode 250 is coming up. Andy and I have been down in the trenches, down in the lab, figuring out what we're going to do. We got big plans. I'm sure. I'm sure we have big plans. And uh, we're looking forward to putting that together for you. And that's in the coming weeks. In the meantime, thank you for listening to Offscript Film Review. Thanks for listening, gang. We appreciate it. From all of us at Offscript Film Review. Oh, well, hold on. I almost forgot. You can check out other content from us at our website, offscriptfilmview.com. And you can email us correspondence, mail at offscriptfilmview.com. Right into the show. Tell us what you think. Tell us if Madam Web is so Madam Web is so bad it's good. Tell us if Sony needs to pivot. Let us know what you think about Nyad or American Fiction. Any other movies you got in mind. We love talking about movies. That's why we do it every week. So, from all of us at Offscript Film Review, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.